This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to risk analyst Alex Kokcharov. He is from Belarus. He focuses on Belarus as well as Ukraine, Russia, some other places. And he's going to be speaking to us about the clashes happening right now in Belarus, where it looks very much like the dictator, let's not mince our words, the dictator Lukashenko has rigged the election. It looks very much like that has happened. And the protesters, the people have come out onto the street and are absolutely sick of it. They've been met with a very harsh crackdown. Um, security forces have been beating them. One protester has been killed. There has been live rounds. There has been a military scene. It's all going mad right now. So Alex is going to explain to us what is happening. If you like what we're doing, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. Before we get into the current events, maybe you can give us a little kind of brief history of um, the situation in Belarus and, you know, Lukashenko has been in power since 1994. Maybe you can just go over that because a lot of people actually have not really any clue where Belarus is or what it is. So for a lot of people, this has kind of come as a shock. Like, where is this place and why is it going mad, you know? So Belarus became independent uh, from the Soviet Union in 1991 when the USSR disintegrated and actually the agreement uh, on uh, uh, the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union was signed physically in Belarus, in the uh, Belovezhia National Park, uh, the Belovezhia Accords uh, of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. So in 1991 it became independent um, and uh, for the first couple of years of its independence it had... uh, it was trying to build um, a, tran- a transition towards a more democratic society and political system. And in 1994, a new constitution was adopted, which included a position of president. Uh, positions of president were very popular in the former Soviet space. It was believed that uh, having a strong leader was important for success. So uh, a lot of... Uh, countries uh, of the Soviet Union adopted uh, presidential systems or mixed presidential parliamentary systems. And in 1994, there was a first election in Belarus, uh, which was free and fair, and in which uh, President Lukashenko um, was elected. So he was genuinely elected by the majority of the electorate, because in the second round, uh, he ran against quite an unpopular uh, a prime minister who was an apparatchik, uh, and uh, so it was a very easy win for him. And Lukashenko ran an, an anti-corruption campaign. He was promising to reduce corruption, uh, improve living standards, bring back many of the things from the Soviet recent Soviet past, um, improve relations with Russia. Uh, and it resonated with a lot of people. So he was elected genuinely uh, in a in a free and democratic vote. But very quickly after becoming president, he started working towards uh, um, building more power around himself. And in 1996, the constitution was amended through a very rigged referendum. And uh, his powers as president were significantly expanded. There have been multiple 
presidential elections since, and the latest one took place on 9th of August 2020. Uh, and in that election, Lukashenko was claimed to be re-elected. Uh, the preliminary count by the uh, Central Electoral Commission said that uh, he received 80.1% of the vote, which, based on the evidence we saw from the exit polls, independent exit polls, and also from the voting um, in the uh, polling stations at Belarusian diplomatic missions abroad, we generally had very little electoral anomalies, um, is probably unlikely. So he probably, um, it's, it's quite unlikely that he, he would have received eight, more than 80% of the vote. Mm. Yeah. So that's kind of the brief introduction to what's been happening in Belarus. Right. And what kind of a leader has he been? I mean, I know for a while he was very close to Russia and then they kind of fell out. And certainly people I know from Belarus have all told me like this guy is a straight out dictator. It's a very up until recently, you know, people would call it oh the last dictatorship of Europe. But I don't think that's quite accurate anymore. I think there are a few more. But yeah, like what kind of leader was he? Well, he's clearly, you know, an authoritarian leader. He built a system of the so-called vertical of power where he has uh, a very centralized political system where he's at the very center of all decision making. And he is in charge of all appointments from the level of mayors to regional governors to ministers and everyone else. So he controls everything in the country. Belarus is a relatively small country, population of 9.6 million. So it's, you know, similar population to London. And uh, Lukashenko ran it as a collective farm. He used to be a collective farm director back in the day in the 1980s in the Soviet Union. Um, so the system is very centralized. He did start building bridges with Russia and uh, he adopted a policy of uh of political and economic integration with Russia in the 1990s. But I believe that it was driven not by his interest in uh, in Russia or his ideological beliefs, um, but rather on his expectations that uh, in, in any United State of Russia in Belarus, back in the 1990s, young and energetic Lukashenko would do very well compared to the old and ailing uh, Boris Yeltsin, the Russian president at the time. Lukashenko was quite popular in Russia uh, among significant parts of the um, uh, of the population there for a period of time. And I think this reintegration project, which he started in mid-1990s, mid was primarily driven by his desire to become fundamentally the leader of Russia or of the United Russia-Belarus Union and to sit in the Kremlin. Everything has changed when Vladimir Putin became Russian president in 2000 uh, and uh, they have had a, a complex relationship since. But overall, over the past 26 years, Belarus benefited significantly by the economic relation it has had with Russia, of particularly through subsidized energy supplies for a very long period of time. Uh, this has changed recently and it has had an impact on situation in Belarus. Uh, but until recently, Belarus was fundamentally subsidized by Russia via supplies of very cheap energy resources such as natural gas and oil. Right. 
Okay, so they kind of relied on them. Is that why he keeps kind of referring to them as their big brother? Yes, and, you know, Lukashenko, Lukashenko plays this game very carefully. There have been several incidents of falling out between him and the Russian leadership. Um, and the latest episode probably started uh, around uh, 20, you know, 2014, 2015, when uh, Russia got involved in Ukraine and Crimea and Donbass have happened. And this type of development, obviously, uh, created fears in Belarus that, you know, what if Belarus is next? Um, so Lukashenko adopted a policy of rebalancing uh, his foreign policy relations. He tried to rebuild some bridges with the West. Um, he um, released political prisoners. Uh, and by doing so, uh, many of the Western sanctions have been removed, including by the European Union and uh, the United States. And um, he's been, you know, he, he's been playing this game of uh, maneuvering between Russia, the European Union, United States, and also increasingly China. He has been, uh, you know, a Russian ally on certain in certain aspects, but uh, not 100% committed in, on other aspects. So, for instance, you know, Russia and Belarus have multiple economic and political and military alliances. Uh, but uh, Belarus is still ambiguous on its position over Crimea, for instance, uh, whether it recognizes it as part, as part of Ukraine or as part of Russia. Uh, and uh, in any you know, theoretical uh, military conflict between Russia and Ukraine over Crimea, Belarus is, under Lukashenko would likely be quite ambiguous about whether to support its former military ally, uh, Russia, or actually try to, to be neutral, uh, as you know, Lukashenko has been trying to do. Uh, if you remember, since 2014, negotiations on Donbass peace, peace resolution have been taking place in Minsk. I guess that's quite a hard game for him to play, because if he says, like, yeah, Crimea belongs to Russia, then that opens him up for you know, places in his country to get taken. Yeah, of course, yeah. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very fine... You know, it's a very fine line for uh, Lukashenko to um, to thread, uh, and he's been he's been quite successful because he's been trying to maneuver between various centers of power. And for instance, despite the fact that you know Russia and Belarus are formally in uh, multiple economic and political alliances, they have engaged in trade conflicts over multiple types of uh, tradable goods from oil and gas to uh, uh, sugar and milk and dairy and meat and you basically you name it and in the in the most recent incident of um, uh, trade disputes over oil pricing for instance the United States came to rescue and with uh, the US secretary, uh, of state, Mike Pompeo uh, actually visited Belarus and then U.S. crude being delivered to Belarus at the time when Russia suspended its deliveries to Belarus. So Lukashenko has been quite masterful in um, exploiting these big uh, uh, confrontations between bigger powers in the, in the region and globally in order to benefit uh, uh, his own position. 
Right. So let's look at these elections then. So the the uh, elections were on Sunday. It was what the ninth. Um, why would these such a big deal this time around? I've seen protests before they even started, like weeks before, and it seemed like the people weren't. I don't know. It, looking at it, it was like the people are no longer as scared as they were to kind of, you know, fight back against the government. We saw people attacking police as they were, you know, beating protesters even before. So why why was this one such a big deal? So this this election, you know, we have to remember that it's been 26 years now that Lukashenko has been president. So basically you have an, an entire generation of people who were born while he was in power. And, you know, they are already young adults and they can vote, they can, you know, um, uh, they have the rights and uh, they feel that they don't because, you know, uh, they have had the same person on top of the political system for a very long time. And for the first time uh, in the recent history of election, there was a genuine candidate who was uh, representing, you know, the society at large and who was running on a ticket of bringing back democracy to Belarus. She was very open about her interest to have only a very brief political career. And I think it's appealed to a lot of people who saw someone who's been there for 26 years. She said that if elected, once she's elected, she would release all political prisoners and about 700 people have been detained before the election. She would uh, hold a referendum on bringing back the constitution of 1994 with much more reduced powers of the president and many more checks and balances in political system where the parliament would be able to keep the president in check. And she would, within six months, hold a new democratic, free and fair election in which all independent candidates, alternative candidates to the you know, the, to the previous candidate, could run. And then she would step down. So she was basically running on a platform to be a temporary interim president who would um, oversee transition from a, an authoritarian system in which you don't really have options to a more free one where people, including politicians, politicians might emerge who would offer a different vision for the future of Belarus, and she would let people decide, you know, who that person is. So it was like for the first time in a long time, they had like a genuinely kind of democratic opposition. For the first time, there was a, a genuinely democratic candidate who was interestingly not part of the established opposition. A problem with Belarusian opposition, it often is uh, confined to... Uh, to kind of a very ghettoized, ghettoized space, it's either identity politics, so for instance, the sort of national conservative opposition, which is focused on preservation of the language, the culture uh, at the time of, you know, strong dominance of Russian language and Russian culture. And also there is, you know, the, the opposition on ideological uh, lines, which is based either on, you know, ideas of social democracy or communism, or uh, Christian democracy. So all of these traditional opposition parties have actually very limited appeal to the wider um, electorate. And having this candidate this year, 
who was not part of this established opposition, who was not limited to political views of a very specific interest group, political interest group, whether on identity politics or ide ideological politics, but who was focused on democracy, um, was uh, it was it was it was a first, really, you know, uh, for a very long time, and this is what mobilized people, and I think this is what brought so much attention to her, and made a lot of Belarusians think that there is an option, there is an actual option of uh, bringing some change of you know bringing some change to belarus and to do and to do it peacefully right and where did she come from like her background she seems to have been a bit of a um i don't know like uh, it's just it seems like very rare that that would have come out of such a place yes she is absolutely remarkable because uh, three months ago nobody knew her name uh her name is Svetlana tikhanovska and uh, she is the wife of um, prominent YouTube blogger uh, Sergei Tsikhanovsky, who is quite well known in Belarus. And um, he actually announced in May that he would run for presidency. But he was initially detained for a short period of time. Uh, and the logic of the authorities was that while he was in detention, he would not be able to uh, file his uh, application uh, to the Central Elect Election Commission. And of course he couldn't because he was he was behind bars. So what she did, she filed a petition herself, and so she became this unexpected and accidental candidate, I would say. And initially she was uh, quite reluctant to to run. Uh, on 29th of May, her husband was arrested again, and he's been behind bars ever since. Um, I don't think he will be released anytime soon. And so she decided to run despite, you know, the threats against her, uh, partly because she believed that it was a way to help her husband and to have him released, you know, if she would be elected. And I saw her early interviews. She was quite disoriented and shy. Um, she never had any political experience. She... Um, uh, uh, she worked as a teacher of English and she worked as a translator and then she's been housewife in the recent years focusing on bringing up her two children um, and now she was catapulted into the um, spotlight of national politics and she became a candidate and interestingly by mid-July she was um, registered as an official candidate and I think it was a massive miscalculation by the authorities because um, they just didn't expect that a housewife with no political experience. And, and, you know, I think also an important element here is that she was a woman. She was not seen as a threat. Lukashenko made several statements um, that women were not fit to, 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 to take office of president, that the Constitution required a man to hold this very heavy burden of being the head of state. And it's actually um, offended a lot of Belarusian women. We have to remember that in Belarus, 55% of voters are female. And a lot of them 
were very disappointed by by what what they've heard because you know why a woman cannot run for president why she cannot she cannot be president so um in the end she uh started her campaign she joined forces with the campaigns of two other presidential hopefuls who were not registered one of them is former banker Viktor Babarika who was detained but in mid june on uh financial fraud tax evasion charges and again he's been in uh, prison uh, in detention ever since and another one is former diplomat uh Valeria Tsapkala who was also not registered but she joined forces with their campaigns and by uniting the forces they've um, they've established quite a significant you know powerhouse uh, which was headed by three women um Svetlana Tikhonovskaya uh, so the presidential candidate but also Veronika Tsapkala who is the wife of the non-registered candidate Valeria Tsapkala and Ma- Maria Kolesnikova who was the head uh, of the campaign uh, of the banker Viktor Babarika and these three women became this unexpected feminist twist uh in the political life of Belarus and they've mobilized a lot of support and i think because this campaign had this very strong female participation um it was one of the reasons why it was so successful and wherever they would go uh they would be receiving rockstar treatments and uh they would uh uh, uh mobilize very large campaign rallies campaign rally in minsk uh was estimated at up to 70,000 people which is unprecedented by minsk standards and rallies in regional cities were up to 20-30,000 which is again very large crowds by belarusian standards and uh yeah it was very unusual very unusual campaign Sharan right and correct me if i'm wrong here but from what i've observed over the last few months belarus seems to be quite a progressive place like culturally the people seem to be quite progressive considering where it is in europe i mean let's be honest in eastern europe in the americas there's quite a lot of like hard right-wing nationalism a lot of fascism there but from what i've observed people seem to be kind of not on that so much i've even seen like anti-fascist football hooligans fighting the police i mean would you say that's a part of it or have i completely misjudged that i think belarus is generally is generally quite a tolerant Mm. country and this is largely due to the fact that it's very homogenous it doesn't have significant um, minorities whether ethnic or um uh, or racial and it has a very long history of uh, cohabitation of different uh, religious groups uh while a lot of people think that belarusians are uh, russian eastern orthodox uh, many are actually roman catholics or protestants uh or uh greek catholics so it's a very mixed place in terms of kind of religious setup which i think adds to the tolerance of the society and for instance if you travel to belarus you often come to a city or a town and you would see um you would see a, a roman catholic church and an eastern orthodox church on the same square and until world war ii obviously there was also a synagogue um but because of the of the holocaust the jewish population was decimated 
in the 1940s and then it further shrank um, in the 1980s and 90s when uh, Soviet and post-Soviet Jews were um, uh, were allowed to uh, uh, migrate to Israel or the United States. Uh, but, you know, it has this history of mutual tolerance and respect and uh, uh, extreme ideas are not particularly popular in Belarus, whether on the extreme right or extreme left. So Belarusians are, I would say, politically very much uh, in the center. Interesting. Okay, well, let's let's talk then about the election. So it comes to the election day, everybody's out there. Within about three hours, I started seeing videos where it looked very clearly like there was some rigging going on. There are people climbing out of windows, like with ladders, with allegedly having like votes stuffed into boxes and stuff. Tell us about that. What happened on election day on Sunday? Um, I think what's important is actually not just what happened on the election day, but what happened in the five days prior to that. Sure. Because in Belarus, uh, there is a procedure called early voting, which started on Tuesday. Uh, so for five days, there was uh, formally early voting. And according to the official data, 43% of the entire electorate voted during this early voting, which is unprecedentedly high, but even by Belarusian standards, it's much higher than in the elections of 2015 and 2010. And this early voting, when there are no observers, is often used uh, for vote rigging because that's the perfect time to stuff some ballots uh, into the, um, into the uh, boxes. Uh, so, you know, the day of voting comes and it transpires that, you know, nearly half of the population already voted. Uh, and what did the election uh, commissions did? They, on the day of, of the actual election on, this, on Sunday, uh, they uh, restricted the numbers of people who were allowed into the polling stations and they claimed that it was done for the sake of you know health because of the coronavirus pandemic uh, and they restricted the number of polling booths significantly you know cutting down the numbers of people who can vote at the same time uh, so on the streets of minsk and other cities there have been very large very long queues of people uh, waiting for hours to be able to to vote and many couldn't because uh, polling stations closed at eight o'clock in the evening, and not everyone could vote. It was it was even worse at diplomatic missions of Belarus. So, for instance, in London, uh, the embassy here, uh, which normally uh, fits about uh, four or five booths during the election, it only had one booth, uh, which means that they were only letting twenty people per hour into the building to vote. And with some seven, with some 600 people turning up to vote on Sunday the 9th, um, a very large proportion of these people were unable to vote here in London, for instance. Right, so it started taking place straight away. I mean, even beforehand. So the rigging started taking place even before. And then uh, towards the end of the... Uh, after the polling stations closed in, in Belarus, the uh, government, uh, government-owned television channels 
started announcing results of the government uh, conducted um, exit poll, uh, which claimed that Lukashenko won about 70% of the vote. As many people in Belarus, especially among younger urban voters, uh, have voted for his opponent, for Svetlana Tsikhanovska, they just couldn't believe that this was a genuine uh, result. And that the reason why people decided to, to come out to, to protest on the night uh, of the election. Right. So as soon as the elections come in, uh, the election results came in, it seemed like people immediately mobilized, right? Yes, a lot of people started coming out to the streets and uh, uh, we've seen protests in Minsk and many other cities and towns uh, across the country because people could not believe what they've heard, you know. They could not believe that Lukashenko could win, especially by this large margin. You know, if the authorities would have claimed he he, he won by 53%, maybe people, you know, would not be so uh, disappointed with what they've heard. But because the claim was so high. And actually on the next day, the uh, the Central Election Commission claimed that he won more than 80% of the vote, uh, which is even more improbable. Um, so the protest started taking place and police immediately started um, using force, uh, which was not seen before uh, in the history of Belarusian protests. In the past, police of course would use force to disperse and detain protesters, but they would normally use um, batons uh, and um, shockers, electroshockers, but they wouldn't use anything anything heavier than that. But on the first night of protest, on Sunday night, the police started using water cannons, stun grenades, uh, rubber bullets, tear gas, um, which was unprecedented by Belarusian standards. And on the second night of protests, they started using live ammunition in, in an, one incident in Brest, in southeast, southwestern Belarus. And also first fatality during protests in Minsk was confirmed. So, you know, it took just literally two nights for the police, a forceful response to escalate to the use of live ammunition and to causing fatalities, which is unprecedented by Belarusian standards. And I think something else which seemed unprecedented to me, at least from the eye I've kept on Belarus, was the way that the protesters were coming out. Like, there were barricades, we even saw Molotovs, like, obviously in response to the, the brutality from the police. But it seemed like now the protesters are kind of, they're just not scared anymore. You know, it seemed to me that like something is, I don't know, the camel's back has been broken, if you like. Um, I'm not so convinced that this is the case. Uh, I think there is still uh, a lot of room for further escalation of brutality by the security services and the police. Mm. Um, but what we're seeing, we're seeing an attempt of protesters to move towards more nonviolent methods of protest, where the gov for the government it's much more difficult to morally justify use of heavy force. Because, you know, it's one thing, you know, when you have these protests happening at night and barricades and the government can claim, you know, these are riots. Uh, people are throwing objects at us. 
But it's completely different when the protests are taking place not in the evening, not at night, but during daytime and protesters are clearly unarmed and they're carrying flowers. Mm. Uh, so it's, it makes it much more difficult for the government to find pretext to use heavy force against such protesters uh, because, you know, they, they, they don't look threatening. And, you know, there is a lot of evidence showing that they're not threatening. Uh, what has been happening in the recent uh, days, yesterday and today, there have been several female-only protests, uh, which which is one of the ways to uh, by the protesters to reduce the likely use of uh, force by the authorities, because they would think that the authorities are not going to send heavily armed riots police and starts, you know, throwing stun grenades at um, at groups of which are made only of of women. Yeah, you would hope not. Um, yeah, you would. You would. Yeah. Actually, you know, last night there was less violence, for instance, on streets of Minsk than the previous nights. Right, but the the the, the government has also started nabbing people. Right, I've seen a few like videos where they're jumping out of cars, they're shooting out people's tires, and they've done this weird thing where they're parading. Um, like protesters on state television, right? They've got them cuffed up. Um, there's videos of them just beating people on the ground. Like, do you, do you think then that is maybe why the protests have been a bit quieter? Well, I think it's it's several reasons. So first, uh, the fact that authorities are using heavy force and they, they, they're willing to show that they're using heavy force and the fact that there have been a lot of detentions over the first three nights, about 7,000 people have been detained. About 250 have been hospitalized with injuries. There have been two fatalities, two confirmed fatalities. And I would suspect that the, these numbers will grow mm. as we, we simply find out more. And it's obviously reducing the willingness of people to come out and protest. Uh, but also because, you know, there was this change in tactic of protesters uh, making it more difficult for the police to use these violent methods and tactics of detaining and dispersing protesters. So, for instance, uh, initially on the first night, protesters tried to congregate in more central locations. But in, in, in the past two nights, they moved to the periphery of the city, where it's much more easier for them to, um, dis to disassemble if the right police arrives and just run away to their respective homes. And then once the police is gone, to come back and protest again. So the tactic is changing and it makes more challenging for the police to um, control the situation. It overstretches its, um, its, its capabilities. Uh, what we've seen, people were blocking roads, uh, fundamentally preventing police from arriving at locations of protest because you know, police need to, to go by roads and if roads are blocked, you know, what can you do? Um, and so there is a change in tactic. And I think uh, in the coming days or weeks, if these types of protests continue, they will significantly overstretch the ability of police to control those protests and to keep them in check. Right. Um, and we've been seeing... Um 
this kind of, like you were saying, this escalation where it's riot police and then there's live rounds. But we're also seeing what's called the KGB Alpha units. Maybe you can explain to us what are they? We know that, you know, people have said to me, uh, it's not the KGB anymore, it's the FSB. I'm like, yes, I know, but Belarus still calls it that. Like, what are they? Who is the KGB Alpha that we're seeing on the streets? So they're actually KGB because Belarus is the only country of the former Soviet Union which didn't even bother renaming the KGB. <laughs> so it's still KGB in Belarus. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Alpha, they are specially trained uh, in... Um, especially trained uh, officers uh, with fundamentally uh, military-style training who are trained to uh, deal with situations of this sort to um, to work during protests and riots and to prevent violence overthrow and of the government. So th the fact that they're being deployed on the streets suggests that the government understands the risks from the protests and the government wants to keep the protests in check in order to make sure that they do not present a challenge uh, to government stability. Right. And they're trained. They're quite close with Russia still, right? Well, overall, uh, Russia, uh, Belarusian uh, military and uh, uh, security services are still very linked to Russia. Mm. Uh, both countries are military allies. Uh, a lot of senior Belarusian military officers, but also officers in the security services, have training in Russia. They went to Russian military universities, military colleges. Um, they've done training in Russia. They often train with Russia during joint exercises. Uh, so there is there are still a lot of ties to Russia between the military, the security services, and to a lesser extent with the police. The police is uh, less less linked to Russia, but security services and military still are. So what do you make about these videos then where we, I've seen, I think, seven now where I don't know if it's former military, but at least they still have their fatigues and their badges and their berets. It's like Belarus, Belarus military people videoing themselves saying I'm no longer associated with this. I'm throwing it away because they're disgusted. Um, you know, by what, what the people are doing, what they're doing to the people that are protesting. Do you think that's kind of something quite big or is it, you know, maybe just for show? I think it's indicative that, you know, some people are unhappy with the direction which the current government is taking and they do not agree with the fact that such heavy methods are used uh, by the police and uh, by the security services to detain and disperse peaceful unarmed protesters but based on the on the on those videos you know i've seen also a bunch of videos but i think there may may have been about 10 or 15 mm -hmm. of, of those uh of those police officers or special forces officers um and for instance if you look at the numbers the police force alone in belarus is eighty-seven thousand people with the kgb including alpha it's about 100,000 people. So if we have even 100 of those defecting and uh, resigning from their service, it doesn't change the game. Mm. The majority would still keep their loyalty with the government. But on the other hand, if you know in the coming days or weeks we're going to be seeing thousands of them uh, leaving their offices and resigning, 
then it would show that, you know, loyalties are no longer there. So I think, you know, it, it's important to remember that uh, the numbers are still quite, quite low. And uh, at this rate, you know, even if 100 or 200 of, of 100,000 people in the security services and the police resign, it doesn't really change much on the ground. Majority of the police and security services are still loyal to to the government. Mm, okay. Um, and hypothetically now, you know, there's a lot of people that are saying to me, oh, is, it, is there going to be a Maidan like in Ukraine? And honestly, I don't really see the comparisons at all, to be honest. Like, I get it, but I, I, I just, no, I don't think so. But, like, if something like that were to happen, what do you think Russia's response would be? Um, Russia was one of the first countries, was actually second country, which congratulated Lukashenko on Monday with his victory. Uh, so I think it indicates that uh, the Kremlin still supports him uh, as the president of Belarus. I think he's preferred candidate for the Kremlin. And the main reason is that, you know, he's also an authoritarian ruler, the same as Putin. And authoritarian uh, regimes tend to like each other. They, they find it's easier to work with each other, despite all the differences and disagreements they might have had in the past or might have in the future. Uh, they find it's easier to work between each other. Uh, transition to democracy would open, you know, would open too many unknowns for Russia. So I think their tactic is probably to deal with Lukashenko. He might be, uh, you know, he might be not the preferred ideal candidate, but he's probably better out of, of those which are there. Um, so I think Russia will, will support him politically and Potentially, even, you know, if he requests help of the Russian uh, security forces or military, also by deploying such forces, if if he asks for such help, uh, I think he will try to avoid asking for such help because he knows that it will weaken him in the future in any relations with Russia. And especially if Russian military comes into Belarus, uh, to deal with the protests, it will be much more difficult to ask them to leave after they're no longer needed. Yeah, as we all know, when Russia turn up to, you know, ostensibly protect the Russian-speaking peoples, they don't ever go back once that has been done. Yes, that's correct. So, so I think he would he would try to avoid such a situation. But if situation becomes critical, I think he would he would potentially ask Russia for help. And under the circumstances, Russia would be likely to send such help. Right, well, this, this makes me kind of confused, though, because, you know, he has that kind of relationship. But then I think a few weeks before the elections, there was this strange story where alleged Wagner um, mercenaries from Russia were all arrested by the uh, the KGB Alpha in Belarus. What, what was going on there? To be honest, I don't think it was a genuine event. I think mm. it was a staged spectacle. Uh, which probably had multiple reasons for it to be carried out. And it was probably done with uh, tacit uh, support of Russia. So Russia probably knew about, about what would, was about to happen and uh, probably agreed to play along. Uh, 
there was not much of a, a significant criticism in Russia of the fact that Russian citizens have been arrested. Yeah, I saw that. So, so kind of because Russian response was quite muted, I would say Russia, Russia was probably part of this spectacle, uh, which was probably aimed to demonstrate that you know Lukashenko is the supporter of uh, Belarusian sovereignty and independence, and that if if voters don't vote for him, uh, some uh, green men are coming and uh, um, and uh, are going to destabilize Belarus, and it's going to be another Donbas. Uh, I don't think that many Belarusian voters bought this uh, this theory, but probably it was it was something along the the thinking was probably along the lines. I don't think it was a genuine event, which was that you know it, they were like genu- that these people were presenting any genuine threats to Belarusian government or or something like that. Right, which is kind of ironic because actually now that he has stolen the election and things are getting heavy, <laughs> like. If it got worse, then you would actually see the green men coming in, but probably, you know, with his, uh, with his, with his help, it's a, it's a weird situation. Um, is there any specific kind of uh, region in Belarus that identifies as Russian? You know, like for example, we had that in the Donbas even before the kind of, you know, the the Russians went in and basically seized the place. There was actually, you know, a lot of people there that identified as Russian. You have a similar thing in like Narva. Uh, in Estonia, is is there any place in Belarus like that? No, it, uh, Belarus is quite homogenous. It's mostly ethnic Belarusian, and it's mostly Russian-speaking, especially urban populations. In 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 Belarusian cities, you you would very rarely hear Belarusian spoken on the streets. Um, so, you know, those pretexts which were used in Ukraine. Uh, by Russia to interfere in 2014 would not work in Belarus because there are no areas with uh, ethnic Russian population and there are no areas with ethnic with Russian speaking population because Russian speakers live all over and they they basically live in all all cities and they're clearly not uh, you know they're not discriminated and you know if you ask me uh, Belarusian speakers are, speakers are actually much more discriminated in Belarus than uh, Russian speakers. Um, so I don't think that you know Donbas scenario is likely in Belarus, and uh, any attempts to create a, a Vitebsk uh People's Republic uh, would you know they wouldn't have any potential substance on the ground. Um, uh, to to support uh, such uh, attempts. Okay, thanks for clearing that, that up because I was wondering. I was like, oh no, they're going to pull that trick. Um, you know, your your job is basically to to analyze this situation, and it's your home country, so obviously this is very close to you. What do you think might happen in the next kind of few weeks? Do you think this is going to play out well, or do you think it's going to be more of the same, just violence and aggression? Well, I think. You know, the fact that uh, Lukashenko announced that uh, uh, he is the winner of the election, it indicates his intent to stay in power in Belarus for the time being. Uh, I think it's more likely than not that the use of um, of the repressive state apparatus, including police and security forces, will eventually subdue the protests. And... Uh, um, and Lukashenko will stay in power. 
but it will weaken him. It will weaken him both domestically and internationally because on the domestic front, he no longer will be able to claim that he has support of the people and he will become in a position of, I don't know, you know, a foreign occupying power uh, in his own land. And it will be very difficult to actually carry out successful policy because I can easily see that, you know, he will be traveling somewhere and he will be booed by people. Uh, and it's unpleasant, of course. So I think he most likely he will he will remain in power for for now, but it will weaken him domestically, but also internationally, because what we're seeing is there are calls for sanctions in many Western countries against Belarus. Uh, this includes European Union. This includes UK, United States. Uh, a lot of politicians, including in the European Parliament, uh, in the US Congress, are calling for new sanctions against Lukashenko government. Um, and, you know, with with what's happening in Belarus, it's quite likely that such sanctions will, will be introduced. Uh, and it will make Lukashenko weaker because he no longer... Uh, will be able to play this game of uh, foreign policy rebalancing and he would be stuck with Russia. He will be in a situation of this, you know, unpopular kid who can only, in school, who can only hang out with other unpopular kids. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But a lot of those unpopular kids that you can hang around with have a lot of power still, though, no? Yes, but, you know, Russia is, is much more powerful unpopular kid. And uh, in a situation... Belarus vis-a-vis -vis Russia, Lukashenko will be in much more weakened position uh, and uh, Russia would be able to ask for various concessions from him for continued support. Um, and this might include, for instance, privatization of key economic assets in Belarus, such as major industrial plants, uh, their privatization and, and, and their sale to Russian companies. Also, Russia might ask for military bases in Belarus. It has asked for those in mm. the past, and Lukashenko managed to rebuff such Russian designs back in 2015. But back then, he was much stronger domestically. Uh, and now, it will be, you know, he will be much weaker. So he, would, he will be doing whatever Russia wants. So if, if it happens, basically, he will end up in a situation of hollow victory, Pyrrhic victory, where... He, yes, he's in power, but he's weakened. And uh, his ability to conduct both domestic and uh, foreign policies is very much limited. Right, and remind me, which countries does Belarus border? So Belarus borders on Russia. It's the longest border. It also borders on Ukraine. And it borders on three EU states, Poland, Lithuania and Latvia. So that would be a dream for Putin to get um, Russian bases in Belarus, right? Uh, yes, because they, <laughs> from, you know, from... Uh, from bases in Belarus, he would be able to threaten both Ukraine and also NATO. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a great situation. But I guess, you know, then he could say, well, NATO has built bases around me, blah, blah. Um, Alex, is there anything else you think we should cover before we wrap this up? Um, well, I still think that obviously there is an alternative scenario where uh, Lukashenko's regime will crumble. Um, I still think it's less likely than Lukashenko continuing, at least for the time being. 
and maybe not necessarily for the full term, uh, not full five years, but uh, at least for now. Uh, but I think if there is significant increase in non-violent protest in the form of uh, strikes, which affect major sectors, including manufacturing sectors and public transportation sectors, which fundamentally paralyze the country, that could start cracking the elites up. And if the elites start disintegrating and people who are in power start defecting and resigning from their positions, uh, that would indicate that uh, Lukashenko is weakened domestically and uh, he would be pushed towards an exit. Uh, but I still think that this scenario is less likely than the kind of main scenario of Lukashenko using heavy hands to to remain in power. Right, that's that's something I forgot actually. Yeah, well, there's a big strike today, right? And it looks to me that it's it's nationwide. The strikes are spreading. Uh, they're still, you know, relatively small by the national scale, but they're already taking place in uh, multiple uh, industrial factories in Minsk and in other cities. Uh, but they haven't affected uh, the transportation system as of yet. Um, and they haven't caused, you know, because they, they, they're in the early stages, uh, they only started, they haven't caused significant economic impact. But if they continue for an extended period of time and they remain peaceful and nonviolent, it will put this, you know, pressure on the system and particularly on the economic system, the economic functioning of the system, where Lukashenko would no longer be able to boast that, you know, he is presiding over stability because stability will no longer be there. So if the strikes can continue for weeks or maybe even months, that that could be potential uh, scenario under which he will be pushed out. Uh, but it remains to be seen whether this scenario will play out. Yeah, well, let's hope uh, things will get better for the people. Um, mate, where can people find your work and follow you on social media and what have you? Well, I'm on Twitter, uh, Alex Kokcharov in one word. So I'm on Twitter and I um, I focus on the region. So a lot of uh, content on Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, uh, and uh, currently more in Belarus because it's much more eventful right now. But uh, I'm sure Russia and Ukraine can be eventful in the month and years ahead as well. Yeah, man. I mean, spell your surname for us for anyone that doesn't clock that. Okay, absolutely. So it's Alex Kokcharov, K-O-K-C-H-A-R-O-V. Thank you very much, mate. That was really insightful. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Alex Kokcharov speaking about the uprising, the clashes, the stolen election in Belarus. It's all ongoing right now. The uh, strikes have got a lot bigger um we're seeing people buy what some are saying maybe tens of thousands out in the street now um specifically today or yesterday depending on well what day is it oh fuck well it doesn't matter by the time you hear this last week um there was uh, one of the uh, protesters that got killed he was shot at point blank range by the uh, belarusian uh security forces um there was like a basically kind of a makeshift public funeral for this guy so the clashes are very much still ongoing and it seems to be getting bigger and bigger the uh, metro workers have gone on strike as well in minsk so that's obviously a big problem for the regime there for lukashenko when metros are not running it's actually causing some serious harm uh, to his power um 
As usual, if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. That is the main way we make money, the main way we can keep doing this, the main way we do our documentaries, podcast episodes, everything. We are anti-corporate. We do not accept uh, corporate money. Um, God knows we would probably be in a better position financially if we did right now, um, but that's not what we're about. So yeah, patreon.com slash popularfront or popularfront.co slash support or if you want to look cool wear our merch and support us at the same time go to popularfront.shop this episode is sponsored by oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa they're a good bunch of guys and women and independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 this episode is also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South and one in West. Check them out on social medias at Grind Core House and you will uh, see them where you can get coffee. Tell them Popular Front sent you. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda. Get prints at propagandopolis.com. I'm in the process of working out a 10% off code for Popular Front listeners. Um, So maybe wait another week or two before I've got that. But yeah, check them out, propagandopolis.com. Um, and as usual, like I said, please support us at patreon.com slash popular front. You get bonus episodes, access to the uh, community discord is nearly 500 people in there now, all with various different um, skill sets in research and all sorts of stuff like that. It's a very interesting place to be. Every person you can think of, there are goths, there are trans people, there are gay people, there are white people, black people, Indian Brazilian, um, Arabs, Kurds, everyone is in there basically. There is no bullshit. Yeah, there's a good bunch of people in there. So patreon.com slash popular front, all sorts of benefits, all sorts of extras, and it keeps us moving forward. Social media, follow me at Twitter, at what? Yeah, twitter.com slash Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Popular Front is at Popular Front CO. Uh, the Instagram is Instagram.com slash Popular dot Front. Um, and on YouTube, we've got a brand new documentary up there showing the rise and fall of the Seattle Chop protest. Uh, YouTube.com slash Popular Front. And very soon, we will have a documentary, uh, a small, short kind of uh, dispatch, if you like, from the ground in Belarus, showing what it's like, uh, the protests up close. We've had our lad Luke Pierce, he's been filming uh, there. He's out now, so we can talk about it. We couldn't really, because obviously it's a brutal dictatorship there and people have been getting absolutely battered. A lot of journalists have been arrested now as well as of this recording. Uh, Most of them, luckily, they're kind of getting deported straight away rather than kept, but still it's a bad situation. A lot of protesters have been tortured, beaten. Um, Again, one has been killed. It's just awful. So yeah, we've got a documentary coming to youtube.com slash popular front soon. All about that. It's great work. Uh, Follow Luke at Luke Pierce one or Luke Pierce 100. Uh, It's it's, on Twitter. It's one or the other. And on Instagram, it's one or the other. But have a look like, yeah, have a look. Um, Thank you to the following people from the Patreon. They are, if this graph will fucking load. K. Hardy Roberts, uh, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Bastian Gamillo Rittmeyer, 
Sorry, I'm a bit ill today. <clears throat> Ian Froese, James Colley, Michael Akakan, Ethan Reyes, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, Alex Northrop, Ed Coulthard, Johnny Lafleur, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Newski, Maxwell Burke, Anthony Kabarik, Michael Barone, Don Wayne, Scott Hopton, Liam William, Williams, sorry, Fragile Feeling, Chris Cusimano, Cusimano, put my teeth back in today, uh, Sebastian from the Discord, Degenerate Zero Alpha, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, Olin Thorne, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, Azad, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Christina Rovetti, Moody Al-Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, uh, Brian McLaughlin, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Sarushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, Scartoon Music, Stephen Davila, Patrick Bronte, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Q-Ball, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Joanne Stocker. Thank you all so much for helping this move forward. This is, you know, not going to survive without the support of the people on the Patreon, um, especially the high tier people. Thank you all so much. Really appreciate that. Um, and yeah, like I said, if you want to get involved, patreon.com slash popular front music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by sam black noticed notice notice see if you can notice the uh, sample he's used um check him out at samblackpf.com <laughs>